Well, it's been an incredible, super summer. This is the third year we've done this in a row, and our staff has said this is by far the best one. Here's how I know it's been a good, super summer. Every speaker's connected, brought a great word. Uh, when I come in, to, someone said, you're not preaching today, are you? So I think it's been a pretty good, super summer. Well, this week we have a, a guest who has been not only just a guest, he's become a friend over the past several months. Uh, Dr. Corey Abner is the lead pastor. Corey Abner is the lead pastor at Florence Baptist Temple uh, right across the river. You've seen a big white church on the interstate. Uh, he's been there for a couple of years now, I think. And before that was the, one of the teaching pastors at Highview Baptist Church in Louisville, one of the largest churches uh, in the state of Kentucky, and a pastor at a great church before that. And so he just did a great job the first service. I know you're going to be blessed and challenged and encouraged all at the same time. So Liberty Heights Church, would you welcome to our pulpit, Dr. Corey Abney, please. Well, thank you, Pastor and Church, for welcoming me. It is an honor to be with you. Uh, and your pastor has become a friend and uh, someone that I highly respect and uh, so privileged to partner with as we strive to reach uh, greater Cincinnati. Uh, you from the north and me from the south. But uh, we're trying to penetrate lostness in this community, in this area. And uh, you're blessed with a great pastor, a great pastoral team, and a great vision to reach uh, Ohio, Greater Cincinnati and the world with the gospel of Christ. And so uh, I'm just honored to be with you today. And I'm so excited about what God is doing through you uh, as you strive to fulfill the Great Commission. I'd like to ask you now to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 10. As we think today about what it looks like to be a good neighbor. Luke chapter 10 thinking about what it looks like to be a good neighbor. Now, many of you, like me, probably grew up through the you know, late 70s, through the 80s, which is the greatest decade, at least musically, in the history of the world. I think we can all agree that the 80s are the best thing going even today. I, I must admit, I'm a little discouraged because uh, when uh, an 80s song comes on the radio, my kids refer to that as oldies which uh, I strongly disagree with. But nevertheless, if you grew up in that generation or you had kids at that time or grandkids uh, back then, uh, you probably are familiar with one of my favorite shows growing up, Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. How many of you remember Mr. Rogers Neighborhood? All right. Most of you. Woo! Go Mr. Rogers. All right. Somebody's really excited about it. Okay. Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. Well, I remember being at my grandparents' house and watching that show as a kid, and I absolutely loved it. It was a great, great show. And, you know, there were so many wonderful people and characters on that show. And if you're here and you don't know about Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, maybe you're too young or your parents were so cruel that they didn't let you watch that show back then. Uh, I just want you to understand, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood is the reason television was invented, okay? It was like the best show ever. And if you've never seen an episode, I brought a picture of Mr. Rogers with me today so that we can all be on the same page. Okay? I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. He's a pretty good looking guy back then, wasn't he? Well, nobody amen that. Okay. Mr. Rogers. Now, here's the thing. In that picture, there's there's, uh, you know, the king, the puppet, all these puppet figures. Remember some of the other characters came by? There was like Mr. McFeely. You guys remember Mr. McFeely, the speedy delivery guy, like the nicest male man in the history of the world. That guy. I don't know about you. Like where I live, my mailman is not Mr. McFeely. Like he drives an old beat up Chevy. 
He doesn't smile. I wave. Hey, he doesn't give me the time of day. Uh, where are the days of Mr. McFeely? You know, that's kind of uh, that's kind of how it should be. And the characters on Mr. Rogers neighborhood were that way. They were also nice. They were cheerful. They were clean. They spoke properly. I mean, even the puppets were prim and proper. It was a it was a great, great show. And it illustrates for us how many of us think about neighbors. And what we think about when we think about being a neighbor to somebody else. Like when I think about neighborhoods, I think about, hey, your ideal neighbor. I go back to Mr. Rogers, you know, everybody again. They're clean, friendly, nice. Stop by, knock on the door. Oh, it's so good to see you. They look like you. They have the same socioeconomic background as you. They probably have a similar educational background. Like you look the same. I mean, that's just kind of how it works. And, And when we think about having a neighbor or being a neighbor, so often that's the image that we have in our mind. If not Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, something related to that. And people that are like us, people who think like we think, look like what we look like. They that they have the same philosophy, maybe the same theology, same spirituality. I mean, we, we, we typically think of people who are like us. And that's not unique to our generation, by the way. That really it's always been that way. When you think about, hey, who is your neighbor? You're going to think about people have always thought about people who are like them. Who live across the street, who live next door. Who live in the same subdivision. After all, that's why you bought your house wherever you live, because the people around you and the houses around you and the socioeconomic demographic around you fits the mold of what you classify as a good neighbor, a good neighborhood. That's how mankind has typically always worked. But but we're going to see here in Luke chapter 10 that biblically being a neighbor looks drastically different than an episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. We're going to see that the way Jesus thinks about being a neighbor is much different than the way you and I are naturally inclined to think about being a good neighbor. And what what happens here in Luke chapter 10 is Jesus is in the throes of his earthly ministry. He's, He's proclaimed he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. People are following him as such. He's been baptized to publicly inaugurate uh, his ministry and, and great things are happening. And we've referred to some of those things in our songs today. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. And he is proving to be the Old Testament Messiah. And there's an expectation around Jesus that he is going to reestablish the throne of his father, David. He's going to rule and reign. He is going to overtake the Romans and their rule. And he's going to establish a Jewish monarchy where he sits on the throne as the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. And he He rules and reigns. But of course, not everybody believes that. Not everybody is is in agreement that that this man from Nazareth is the Messiah. Remember, it was said of Jesus, can anything good come out of Nazareth? (laughs) And so there are some following Jesus, not because they believed who he was, but because they were skeptical and they were going to disprove who he was. He claimed to be. And, and one of these men that encounters Jesus is, a, is an Old Testament lawyer. He, he's an expert in the Old Testament law. Now, don't go back today and look at every single one of these. Take my word for it. But, but there were roughly 700 laws in the Old Testament. That's a lot of laws. 
This guy was an expert in those laws. In the first five books of the Bible, we call the Pentateuch and Genesis through Deuteronomy. This guy is an expert and, and he's going to test Jesus to see what it means to get to heaven. And he's going to make sure Jesus knows the law and that if, after all, he's the Messiah, he can answer the question adequately. OK, so let's look at this exchange together. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. Look what happens here with Jesus and this expert in the law. Okay, the, the, the Bible says now a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, notice he's not asking with a pure motive. He's just saying, all right, I'm going to test this guy to see if he knows his stuff. And so Jesus very tactfully answers the question with a question. Okay, and Jesus says, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, well, you've answered correctly. Go do this and you will live. No problem. But the lawyer desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, well, then who is my neighbor? Again, thinking about his subdivision, thinking about people who look like him, fellow Jews, thinking about people with the same socioeconomic background, thinking of people with the same theology, thinking of people who were from the same heritage. All right, well, who is my neighbor? Tell me who my neighbor is and, and, and then I'll prove to you how I have loved them. That's what this guy is thinking. And notice Jesus replies with a parable, with a story. And here's what he says. Now, there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the lawyer said, through clenched teeth, I'm sure. Well, the one who showed mercy and Jesus said, then go and do likewise. Now, what does it look like to be a neighbor? Biblically, what does it look like for you and for me to be a good neighbor? We'll, we'll write this down. This is the overarching concern of this passage of Scripture. Your neighbor is anyone in need of compassion. Make a note of that there in, in your worship guide or in the margin of your Bible. Your neighbor is anyone in need of compassion. Maybe you should make it personal. My neighbor is anyone in need of compassion. Now, this lawyer doesn't understand this because he comes to Jesus and, and he, he wants to put Jesus to the test. All right. How do I inherit eternal life? <laughs> thinking Jesus is going to recite some of the law. He's going to point back to the covenant with Adam or Moses or Abraham, certainly. And, and so he's expecting some kind of answer to where where he can really hold Jesus feet to the fire. But Jesus knows this is the lawyer's motive. And so instead of answering the question, he simply poses another question. Well, what does the law say? I mean, after all, you're an expert. Well, what's in the law? 
And the lawyer, instead of, thankfully, because it would add a lot more pages to our Bibles, instead of running through all 700 laws, he summarizes the law. And, and that's typical. You don't run through all 700. You just summarize it. All right. Well, the, the law summarized in two points. You'll love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let's break those down for a moment because I want us to understand how difficult this was for the lawyer. Because Jesus says, you're absolutely right. Do these and you'll live. Hey, if you do these, you'll have everlasting life. Okay, well, whoa, whoa, I can get to heaven if I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and if I love my neighbor as myself, you absolutely can get to heaven that way. Do you realize there are two ways to heaven? The first way to heaven is you fulfill all of the law. Has anyone done that? <laughs> no. The second way, and really the only way, because we're all lawbreakers, is to trust in the grace of God that comes through a crucified and risen Christ. But Jesus is pressing the first way. All right, you're a lawyer. You're an expert in the law. You're testing me. Or what does the law say? We've got to love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you realize how hard it is to love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? I know many of you here today are like, man, I love the Lord. And, and I'm sure that's absolutely true. But to love the Lord in the way that the law requires is impossible. It, it's like going out from here into the woods and you have a little personal retreat time. Okay? And you don't have your iPhone, you don't have your iPad, you don't have your Kindle, uh, you, you don't have any distraction, you don't have uh, any book, it's just you in complete solitude. And someone well said years ago that whatever your mind naturally drifts to in solitude is what you ultimately worship. What you meditate on, what you ponder, what your mind naturally goes to to think about is what you are naturally inclined to worship. And very few of us, really none of us in this room would say, I think, that consistently, that, that, that holistically, perfectly, our minds drift toward the glory and the greatness of God, the attributes of God, the, the, the splendor of God, that we are naturally inclined in moments of solitude to drift toward the glory of Christ. And we think about a lot of other things because we're naturally inclined to to do and think about other things. Very, very difficult to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so the lawyer knows this to be true. He knows no one loves God perfectly. I mean, is there anybody in this room that would say, oh, I love God perfectly? Probably not. This lawyer understands. You can't prove you love God perfectly. So, so, so he presses into the second one. Did you notice that? Well, you love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's not easy to do either. But on this point, the lawyer thinks he can prove it. But but really to love the neighbor as yourself is to is to love other people. Listen, with the same fervency and the same urgency and the same sacrifice and the same commitment with which you love yourself. It means you meet the needs of others with the exact same cost, the exact same passion, the exact same urgency that you would meet one of your own needs. Well, that's a high standard. But the lawyer here thinks he can prove it. And so he's testing Jesus further. OK, well, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And he's thinking Jesus is going to say, well, it's, it's the person that lives across the street. It's a fellow Jew who's also waiting for the Messiah, who loves the law, who, who is uh, headed toward eternal life. It's somebody in your socio-demographic background. It's somebody with your same theology. This is precisely what this Jew thinks the answer will be. Your neighbor is someone like you. 
And Jesus, again, flips his theology upside down. Because Jesus doesn't give him the answer he's looking for. Oh, well, your neighbor is, is, is somebody that's also Jewish, who's waiting for Messiah, etc., etc., etc. No, 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 Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus tells a story. And Jesus says, okay, well, let's, let's attack it from this angle. Okay, there's a man who, who was traveling in between Jerusalem and Jericho. And, and on his way, he encounters some robbers who beat him. Who, who strip him naked and they leave him on the side of the road dying. Now, now, in the first century world, this was not unusual. Actually, the path from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 18 miles long. And on that path, there, there, there was an area of rocky terrain that made it ideal for robbers, where they could hide, they could jump people, they could rob and steal and kill. And this happened all the time. I mean, on the front page of the Jerusalem Inquirer were, were stories of people who were robbed and killed on this pathway from Jerusalem to Jericho. Very well known in the first century. So the story makes sense. There's a guy going from Jerusalem to Jericho and he's robbed, he's beaten, he's left on the side of the road and he's dying. And then here's the kicker. Now, look, there, there, there are three people who come alongside of him. The first one, Jesus says, is a priest. The second one is a Levite and the third is a Samaritan. The priest and the Levite were socially responsible for the needs of the poor. Notice Jesus doesn't say a Pharisee. He doesn't say a Sadducee. He says, no, there was a Levite and a priest in our day. It, it may be a, a pastor and a priest or the head of some type of relief organization and, and, and a pastor or a minister. I mean, somebody who's responsible for meeting the needs of others, someone that you would hold in high esteem, somebody who has a deep conviction and compassion. I mean, somebody that that would fit the bill. And in the first century world, it would have been a priest and a Levite. Notice Jesus says a priest comes by, sees the man on the side of the road, but passes on the other side. And then there's a Levite who comes, sees the man on the side of the road and passes on the other side. But then a Samaritan comes. And he sees the man on the side of the road and he stops. Because he has compassion. Now, you have to understand that Jews and Samaritans hated one another. And, and when I say they hate each other, listen, I'm not talking about like you and I saying, oh, I hate that person or I hate this. I mean, listen, we hate a lot of things that, that are overstated. You know, some of you in this room hate Taco Bell. <laughs> OK, some of you in this room say, oh, I hate that name. I would never name my child that name. Why? Because somebody with that name 15 years ago broke up with you. That's why. Right. And so we hate a lot of things. That's not the kind of hatred I'm talking about with Jews and Samaritans. Get this. Jews and Samaritans so hated one another, they were taught to hate from birth. And, and if, if a Jew were traveling north from Jerusalem, they would bypass Samaria so they did not have to encounter a Samaritan. Now, that's hatred. I mean, can you imagine like you're telling me about your summer vacation? I say, hey, where'd you go? I went down to Cocoa Beach just outside of Orlando. I mean, that's fantastic. How'd you go to get down there? Well, we shot over through West Virginia and Virginia, uh, picked up North Carolina, South Carolina, shot over to Atlanta, then down to Cocoa Beach. Why in the world did you go that way and not just take 75? To, oh, I hate Tennesseans. <laughs> really? Like, like you went 
hundreds of miles out of your way to get to Florida because you I mean, if that were true, we would say you're a little weird. Right. I mean, that, that's a hatred that doesn't make a lot of sense. I hope now you you understand that's the kind of hatred that Jews had for Samaritans and Samaritans had for Jews. And Jesus says a distinguished priest. A distinguished Levite. Oh, they saw the man on the side of the road. They saw their countrymen. They saw a fellow Jew there on the side of the road. And they acted like they didn't see him and passed on the other side. But the Samaritan saw the Jew and he stopped. And not only did he stop, he was filled with compassion. Now, I don't think that went over too well with the lawyer. What do you think? I, I mean, at this point, I don't think he's overly enthusiastic about where Jesus' story is heading because he says basically his pastor and his congressman passed by a member of his family and a Samaritan stopped. I mean, it's so hard for us to comprehend how atrocious this was. I mean, think of a member of your family, one of your children, one of your grandchildren lying on the side of the road, having been beaten and robbed in horrific shape, bleeding out, dying. And Pastor Brad comes along, sees a member of your family and passes by like he didn't. Now, I've been in ministry long enough to know that would probably spur in a few emails, Right. I mean, can you imagine watching the surveillance video of your pastor passing by on the other side? Oh, I see. And then he acts like he got, you know, oh, somebody tweeted at me and he doesn't do anything about it. Or, or, or a person you highly respect, you, uh, a Billy Graham or somebody in, in public office that you highly respect. And they seeing your member there on the side of the road, passing by on the other side. And then a Muslim terrorist stops. Full of compassion and meets the need of your family member. Well, that would that would rock your worldview, wouldn't it? I mean, that would shake you up. It would shake me up. And you say, now that seems a little bit over the top. No, 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 no. That's precisely the point of the parable. The Samaritan stops. The Samaritan has compassion. The Samaritan goes sacrificially to meet the need of the Jew who is injured on the side of the road. And he does it with compassion. Wow. That's just hard. It's hard to comprehend. And, And you see here when you're studying parables, something that we call the zone of turbulence. There's something that doesn't fit. And notice here. The zone of turbulence in this parable. Notice there's there's someone in need, someone who sees the person and then goes the other direction. Somebody else comes by, sees the person in need, goes the other direction. And then somebody comes along, sees the person in need and stops full of compassion. There's the meaning of the parable. It's just like in Luke 15 with the lost parables. Remember the lost sheep, lost coin, lost son? Remember that? Jesus told those three stories in Luke 15. Something is lost. Something is found. Somebody rejoices. Something is lost. Something is found. Somebody rejoices. You get to the lost son. Something is lost. Something is found. Somebody rejoices. Ah, but then somebody is really ticked off. (laughs) There's the meaning of the parable. 
And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, so many people miss this. The meaning is found in the fact that the Samaritan stops because he's so full of compassion toward even a Jew that is injured on the side of the road. And he stops. Now, ladies, please don't overlook the fact that this man stopped while on a journey. That's how significant this was. Uh, listen, if your husbands are like me, when you get in the car and you're going on your family vacation, the goal is very simple to break the family speed record. Right. You get there so you can call or text your other family members and say, I got there three minutes and 42 seconds ahead of last year's time. Okay? And if you got to eat in the car, you eat in the car. That's how it goes. You don't stop at rest areas. Your kids got to use the restroom. You roll down the window. You do whatever you got to do to get to the destination. All right. You with me? And notice here in the story, the guy stops. But not the Levite, not the priest, the Samaritan stops. And he takes from his own resources. Oil and wine that was used medicinally at that time to cover his wounds, to stop the bleeding. He bandages him up, sets him on his own animal. He walks the rest of the journey while this Jew rides in who had been injured. And they get to this inn and, and, and he goes to the innkeeper and he puts some money down on the table. He said, listen, this will cover a few nights and this should cover whatever he needs. But listen, you let him get whatever he wants. I mean, if he wants to get the king size peanut m and out of that little refrigerator that costs $7.50, you let let him get him. All right. Listen, whatever he needs in this hotel, whatever he needs in this inn, you let him get it. Whatever he needs, I will give you more money if it's required when I get back. He spent two denarii, which is about two days wages. You know how much that is in American dollars? Three hundred dollars. The guy spends three hundred dollars on a complete stranger who, by the way, is a Jew that hates his guts. He stopped. So full of compassion. He meets the needs by going way above and beyond the call of duty. Sacrificially, unselfishly, he, he meets this guy's needs he, and he takes care of him. And then you get to the end of the story. And what does Jesus say? He looks to the lawyer and he says, now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Not who is my neighbor? Please notice this. Circle this in your Bible. Verse 36. This is huge. Jesus doesn't ask now, who is your neighbor? That was the original question. It's like Jesus forgot it. Jesus doesn't come back and say, who is your neighbor? No, Jesus says, who proved to be a neighbor? And the lawyer was forced to say, the one who showed mercy. I mean, the Samaritan. I mean, you could see, that's what I said earlier, through clenched teeth. Oh, the Samaritan. He won't even say that. No, the one who showed mercy. And then Jesus turns to him and says, then go and do likewise. And so, so listen to me. Your neighbor, my neighbor, is anyone in need of compassion. Of any race, of any socioeconomic background, of any theological persuasion, of any philosophical leanings. Your neighbor, my neighbor, is anyone in need of compassion. And the Lord is not interested in the posing of the question, who is my neighbor? He's interested in the proving of the answer. 
I'm going to go to those in need. I'm going to help those in need. I'm going to show compassion to those in need. I'm going to show kindness to those in need sacrificially, unselfishly, but yet passionately. I'm going to care for the needs of others. I'm going to meet the needs of others physically and spiritually with the same fervor and the same energy and the same enthusiasm that I would meet my own needs. Jesus is concerned that we prove to be a neighbor when we see need around us. And so here's the thing. This is the mission of the church. That This is the purpose of your life. This is what brings the most fulfillment of anything that you could experience this side of heaven apart from your conversion is serving the Lord Jesus in such a way, serving his church in such a way that you are actively, passionately, persistently pursuing and meeting the needs of others as they become aware to you. You don't sit around and ask, well, Lord, who is my neighbor? You don't sit around and and wait for someone who looks like you or speaks like you or has the same theology as you or same philosophical persuasions of you or the same political view as you know. When you see need, you meet the need. You run to the need. You give sacrificially. You serve sacrificially. You go in a way that shows great commitment and great determination to reach the nations because you understand that the Lord is not interested in the posing of the question, but the proving of the answer. And that's why we exist as a church. That's why you're here as a Christ follower, because the Lord's will is for you and for me to meet the needs of others in such a way that they would say, why in the world are you doing this? That the way we go after our neighbors is so radical that people ask, why are you doing this? And we say, not because of anything we bring to the table, but because someone has been a neighbor to me whose name is Jesus. Who came to me in my distress? Who came to me when I was on the side of the road? Who came to me when I didn't deserve His grace? Who came to me when I hated Him in return? Who came to me and selfish, unselfishly and sacrificially died in my place so that I could have everlasting life? And I'll tell you what, when you show that kind of gospel neighbor impact, I tell you, the, the Lord brings great, great things as a result. And that's what we're called to do. Now, here, now listen, in my experience, people try to limit gospel neighboring in, in one of three ways. The who, the when, or the how. Sometimes you want to limit it with the who. Kind of like the lawyer. Well, Lord, you know what? This person, this person wouldn't make an episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. This person said some bad things. This person's done some bad things. I mean, this, this person looks differently. I mean, this, this person, getting the weeds with this person would, would, would involve a lot of sacrifice. It would put me out of my comfort zone. Sometimes we limit gospel neighboring to the who. Well, Lord, I, I don't know if I need to go to that person. I don't know if I need to go to that people group. Lord, Lord I don't know. That's, that's way outside of where I need to be. Well, we, we can't limit neighboring to the who. Sometimes we limit it to the wind. We, we say something like this. We well, you know what? I'm, a, I'm all about getting out of my comfort zone. I'm all about giving sacrificially. I'm all about going. I'm all about, you know, when I see needs, meeting the needs. I'm all about getting on board with my church and, and getting involved in a small group and partnering it with ways that, that we can go to, to an elementary school, that we can go to Kenya, that we can go to an orphanage. I'm all about helping with this. But you know what? When I see somebody who deserves their plight, well, I, I can't meet that need. You know what? I mean... 
uh, th- this person's home was 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 struck by lightning and it was on fire and these people lost a lot. But I tell you what, their their lives are so disorganized, they're so mismanaged that you know what? I feel like if I would help them, would almost contribute to to their lack of discipline. I'm not going to help that person. I would help this person, but you know what? He's made a wreck of his life. He's made all these foolish decisions, and, and not just one or two. I mean, he continues to make these kinds of decisions. Hey, well, when he gets his life right, th- then you know what? Then I'd be more prone to help him. We limit it to the to, to the when. I'll help him when. Or we do the how much. You know what? I just I can't really afford it. Or you know what? I don't want to make the time. And and typically, if I could be really honest with you, in my experience in 21st century America, when we say we can't afford it, we can't make time. What we mean is we can't afford to alter our lifestyle. (laughs) And and I'll tell you what, when the Lord magically from heaven puts a money tree in my yard, well, then I'll then I'll jump in, then I'll help. And we don't understand that sacrificial giving is the only kind of giving that pleases the Lord. That sacrificial going is the only kind of going that pleases the Lord. And so we limit the neighboring to the who, the when, or the how much. And you know what we fail to understand? We fail to understand that God did not limit his neighboring to the who, to the when, or to the how much. Because he came to you and to me who despised him. The scripture says, like sheep, we've all gone astray. The scripture says there are none who do good, not even one. And God came to us with his infinite love and mercy and forgiveness. He came to the who, even though we despise him. Then he came when we did not deserve it. The scripture says that Christ died for us when we were still sinners. Aren't you thankful today that God didn't say to you or me, I'll tell you what, when you clean up your life, then I'll send my son to die for you. Because can I just say this right now? I would never be a Christian. I would never know the glory of heaven. I would never be on my way to everlasting life. If God was waiting for me to clean up my life, it would have never happened apart from the initiative of Jesus Christ. And I'm glad God did not limit the how much. The scripture says, not with the precious blood of a, a, of a bull or a ram or a goat, listen to me, with the blood of his only begotten son, he accomplished redemption for you and for me. Because Jesus is the ultimate Samaritan. Jesus is the one who comes to those who despise him, who comes to those who reject him with so much love and compassion and grace and mercy and freedom and forgiveness, extending to us a free offer of grace today so that if we will receive it or if we've received it in the past, Jesus is no longer an enemy. He's no longer a stranger. He is now our brother and he is now our friend because he has neighbored us and he has come to us and met our deepest need. Not living the who, the when, or the how much. And if you know that grace today, then you know what it means to be a good neighbor. Not asking, okay, well, well, who is my neighbor? But going to those who have need with the gospel that you yourself have received from Jesus. And it's a gospel that goes It's a gospel that engages. You say, well, how does that work? Well, Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 25. He says, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Jesus is teaching about heaven. And what does he say? Come, I'm going to say to those, come, come and inherit the kingdom. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, well, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? 
What do you mean, Lord? We've been walking with you. We don't remember that time. Lord, when in the world did, did, did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Jesus said. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. I'm so grateful that that you're going to Riverview Elementary School. I'm so grateful you're going to Kenya. I'm so grateful you're ministering to orphans in a James 127 kind of way. I'm so grateful you're impacting your community. I'm so grateful you're planting churches. I'm so grateful that you are expanding in, in, in so many ways your influence around the world. God is glorified in that because in our age of technology and travel, there is no end to the ways we can show gospel neighboring. We can go to people in Haiti. We can go to people in South America. We can go to people in Africa. We can go to people in India. We can go to people in China. And yes, we can go to people across the street and across the subdivision in downtown in in Cincinnati proper. And we can show them the kind of mercy and compassion and sacrifice with which the Lord is pleased. The same measure of love and sacrifice that Jesus has shown to us. And that's when we prove to be a neighbor. And so here's where we go. From this place. Uh, here's, here's the point where we need to take inventory and really ask the question, okay, Lord, where do you want me to go from here? Listen, there are two ways you can respond today. The first one is in guilt. And if you're here today and you're like, man, yeah, I'm guilty. I, I feel guilty. I, mean, I feel like, you know, I need to give more, go more. I, I, there are people with whom I work and people around me where I live. And, and you know, I've kind of been closed off to them. And you know what? I, I, I need to do better. And listen, that's, that, I get that. But if you're motivated by guilt today, please stop. <laughs> because guilt won't get you where you need to be. Guilt will motivate you for today, but it'll fail you tomorrow. It won't, it won't sustain you. Guilt is not where Jesus is headed here. It's it's grace. And it's only through grace that you can be motivated to be the kind of neighbor that Jesus is asking you to be. It only comes through grace. You understand the difference between guilt and grace. Grace. And especially those of you who are here today who are Christ followers and you know that God has saved you from your sin and showered his grace and mercy upon you. When you look at that grace, when you look at that ministry of Jesus where he came to you and he healed you and he blessed you and he's still now caring for you and all of your needs. And you've received that grace now and only now can you know what it means to extend that grace. You have to look to the grace you've received. That's got to be your motivation, extending the grace of Jesus to those around you. Listen, it's, it can't be something on a to-do list. It can't be something on a sticky note. You may have a reminder, and that's great. But listen, this is not something that you just put in a journal and say, okay, now I'm going to start doing this every day. No, it's got to come through a thriving personal walk with Jesus and the grace that you experience with an ongoing way. And when you experience the grace and you show that grace, then you're in a position to live in such a way that you're proving to be a neighbor to those around you. And to those around the world. Listen, let grace motivate you today. Let your experience of how God has saved you motivate you. That's the ultimate way. Listen, I remember before I was a parent, my wife and I have four beautiful children. Before we had kids, I remember you know seeing people with kids, and maybe we'd be going out with somebody, and they'd have kids, and they'd be running late because they had to get a sitter. I'd see a kid throwing a temper tantrum in a grocery store, and I'm like, listen, I, I, I'm going to write a book because I can fix all those problems. 
And let me tell you how you let me tell you how you fix that. And then I had children. <laughs> and now somebody shows up late for dinner. I get it. You know what? I don't. There, there's no animosity here in my heart. I get it. Okay. Like I see a kid throw a temper tantrum in a store. Like I, I've got some measure of compassion. You know why? Because my children have been demon possessed also. Okay. And I'm telling you, I've looked at my beautiful children. I mean, it's just amazing how this works. If you're not a parent, this, this is where you're headed. When, when you get there, you're going to look at your children someday and you're going to say, who possessed you to do this? Okay, because they're not going to act like you. You're not going to train them to do any of that stuff. I mean, I mean, my kids, and they've done it all. They've done the stomp. They've done the running man. They've done all this stuff. They've done it in the store, out of the store. Listen, they'll do it. They can be possessed pretty much anywhere. Even in church. I thought I'd bring him in church. The Holy Ghost. No, the Holy Ghost doesn't protect him from demon possession in the church. Okay? And, and so, you know what? When I come across a child who's having a little fit or I come across a parent, maybe there's some issues there. I don't know. But you know what? I have a lot more compassion. Why do I have compassion? Why, why, why am I much more patient and kind today than I was 15 years ago? Because I've been there. I've experienced it. And listen to me. If you're going to try to be motivated by guilt, you'll never get where God wants you to be. But for those of you that know the grace of God, who've received the gospel neighboring of Jesus, listen to me. You've been there. You know what it's like to be on the side of the road. And you know what it's like spiritually to be bleeding out with no hope. And you know what it's like to look toward a future that's bleak. And you know what it's like to be saved from that. And you know what it means to have grace in your life and compassion and kindness. And here's the thing. That has got to motivate you and continue to motivate you to get out and show that same measure of grace and compassion to the world. Because you've been there. And that's why you go home and you set a budget and you say, you know what? This is a little bit more than we gave last year. and It's going to be a step of faith for us. But we're going to give because there are people who need this ministry. You know what? This is why I'm going to take four days of vacation. You know what? I'm going to go to Kenya or, or, or I'm going to go to Haiti or I, I'm going to go to Brazil or I, I'm going to spend three days with a church planner in Philadelphia. You know what? I'm going to go because. You know what? Yeah, I could I could be soaking in some sun somewhere and, and it's great to do that, too. But but, but you know what? I, I'm going to take some of my time and I'm going to go prove to be a neighbor because I see the need. You know what? I'm going to go to that person with whom I work, who who is hateful and whose language I do not approve of and whose worldview is all messed up. And you know what? I'm going to show grace and kindness to that person. It's not always easy, but I'm going to do it in the same way that Jesus showed grace to me when I was cursing him. Because you know what? If they can see the gospel in me. And eventually glorify my father in heaven will be worth it. You see, there's so many ways that you and I show gospel neighboring, but it starts with knowing the gospel neighboring of Jesus. And if you're a Christ follower, let me urge you today to continue the mission, to continue to rally around your pastor and your staff, to continue to impact greater Cincinnati, the United States of America and the world as you see need. Continue to run to it, continue to meet it, continue to prove to be a neighbor. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you don't know forgiveness and you don't know this grace, I want to urge you right now to respond to that. You can indicate that on your connect card. You, you can speak with a member of our, our staff after the service, but we'd love for you today to know for sure what it means to have a saving relationship with Jesus to where you're forgiven of everything you've ever done and you're covered now, not in your sin, but in his righteousness. Because Jesus wants to prove 
his gospel neighboring to you today. And he'll do it if you look to him in faith. And so let me ask you to bow your heads with me.